0: While many are familiar with the call for one love from the music of Bob Marley, they more than likely know little about the tradition that this message is rooted in. In Rastafari in the Arts and Introduction, Darren Middleton introduces his readers to Rastafari through the creative expressions of its members in literature, art, film, and music. He traces the development of the tradition in Jamaica and abroad, including Ghana, Britain, and Japan, as well as highlighting key narrative, doctrinal, social, and ethical teachings. In our conversation, we discussed Aili Selassie, Rastafari and gender, the literary tradition of insiders and outsiders, the notion of Babylon, the great masters of dub poetry, including Mutabaruka and Benjamin Zephaniah, documentary film, the role of Reggae and Rastafari in Japanese culture, ethnographic work in Ghana, British Rastas, Bob Marley, and the commodification of Rastafari. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Darren Middleton. Welcome, Darren. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Religion. How are you
1: this morning? Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm doing just great. Thanks. So thanks for writing a
0: wonderful book, Rastafari and the Arts, an introduction. Um, this is a really great uh, series of chapters, you take a really interesting approach to both the study of Rastafari um, and the way you put together your book. So I, I thank you for that, and I hope lots of people will, will pick
1: it up. Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Before we get into uh, the details of the book, perhaps you could give us a little bit of background on how you got interested in the study of religion more generally, um, perhaps mentors or moments that were influential in uh bringing you to the study of religion and specifically to the study of Rastafari.
1: Sure. Um, Well, I, um, I'm now uh, – this is my 18th year at uh, Texas Christian University in Fort Worth um, and where I teach a variety of courses in um, religion and the arts. And um, before that, I spent five lovely years at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, my wife is actually from Memphis, but I got to Memphis uh, by a kind of long, circuitous route, and um, that would take us back to England. My, uh, I was born and raised in, in Nottingham in England, in the English uh, kind of industrial East Midlands, and uh, the son of a coal miner. And um, religion really did not play a very uh, active or prominent role in my upbringing. My parents were not religious, in fact. My three older brothers were somewhat indifferent. One of them was fairly militantly opposed to it. So I can't really say that I had any kind of upbringing beyond the sort of standard one that most English... Uh, school children have, which is since it's, since there is a state church, then there is, um, a mandated teaching of religious studies, um, at the, um, from the ages of five through to the age of 16 and it was probably one of the only subjects I was actually fairly decent at. I was I was kind of interested in many of the philosophical and, and spiritual issues that came up in those classes and, and colleagues here are often astounded um, when I tell them that I understood the um, uh, synoptic problem, uh, for example, at the age of 10 because that was, you know, I had a great teacher who was uh, interested in telling us That the Gospels didn't fall straight out of the sky. Um, They actually bubbled up from the human condition, as it were, such as it was in the first century. And here's the literary relationship and so on and so forth. And, And I was just fascinated by all of that and um, started to read. I was a fairly bookish child and um, read a lot of novels and read a lot of uh, philosophy when I got into my teenage years. And believe it or not, I think I was reading Kikigal when I was about 15. So uh, some of that stuff stuck with me. Um and I, I went from um, high school to the uh, University of Manchester. I had some great mentors there. Some of the best philosophical theologians that were in the United Kingdom in the mid-1980s uh, were there. And uh, David Palin was a, a really a fine mentor of mine. He put me onto to uh, something that was unknown to me at the time, which was Christian process theology. And um, I was... Profoundly interested in some of the ways in which that influenced uh, modern and postmodern Christian doctrine. From there, I went to the University of Oxford and took a master's degree with the late Morris Wiles, who was at the time in retirement but uh, had uh, been a very, very prominent uh, Anglican theologian, chairman of the Doctrine Commission for the Church of England. Um, just a wonderful, kind, and patient. Uh, so he'd, he'd have to be really to put it with me, but, um, he, he did some excellent work, uh, including the 1986, uh, Bampton lectures on, um, what sense it makes to say the God acts in history, which was an issue that, that was perplexing me at the time. I was training for, um, the ordained ministry in the United Kingdom and, uh, you know, in addition to reading, you know, sort of obtuse theology. Um I uh, was also pastoring a congregation and some of those uh, folk in the congregation then as now um, wrestle with issues of what sense it makes to say that God acts in history and the issue of prayer and, and um, whether there is a particular providence in the world or whether there's a general providence. Um, and, You know, he, he guided me through that master's degree. What I started to learn at the end of that, um, degree at Oxford was that a lot of my interest was sort of moving into fiction and literary art and visual art and musical art and so i kind of stepped away from oxford and then found my way to the university of glasgow where my um doctoral supervisor david jasper had relocated from um durham university and he had set up the center for um the study of literature and theology and he of course has been um the leading uh, spokesperson for that uh, broad field, if you can call it really a field, that uh, there's so much that that occurs within it. Um, and he sort of gave me the tools to wrestle with um A novelist who by that time was really uh, quite fascinating to me, and that was Nikos Kazantzakis, the modern Greek novelist who um, many of you listeners perhaps will will, um, remember The Last Temptation of Christ, that uh, was a very controversial film that um, Martin Scorsese directed towards the end of the 1980s and maybe even Zorba the Greek um, which uh, Anthony Quinn made famous of course. In terms of the study of religion in general, um, I think I've always been fascinated by the way in which religious people uh live move and and function really um i i've always sort of been interested in it from uh, two two angles or two approaches really i uh, there's the confessional hat that I wear, of course, I'm very interested in what uh, fellow Christians, since I count myself as one, are interested in saying and doing, um, both positive and negative. Um, I, I'm very much invested in the confessional side and the doctrinal side, but there's also a very strong part of me that is interested in the social scientific um, and sort of looking at it on a horizontal level and not. Just on a vertical level, as it were, um, and seeing what what people do with religion, why they do it, um, how it becomes sometimes a unifying force for communities and sometimes uh, the opposite um, so so that explains my interest in religion. if I can go back to Nottingham, however, that would probably explain how my uh, material on the Rastafari emerged because um, and this will probably come as a surprise to some of those folk who have who, who read the book. I, I never took a formal course in the Rastafari. Um, when I was interested in it, um, it was only because I grew up around many Rastafari uh, in my part of of England uh, in the in the seventies and the eighties. Nottingham, as I mentioned, is is an industrial city, and after the Second World War, when the immigration laws were relaxed in the United Kingdom, um, the British government practically took out full-page advertisements in um, the former Commonwealth countries, uh, newspapers, and and, um, invited many... sort of folk in in those Commonwealth former Commonwealth countries to sort of come over and find a new life and many did and many had children of course and it was the the children of those immigrants who came through who by the 70s were becoming attracted to this uh, strong um, faith that became known as Rastafari it, it was it took on a very sort of a Social protest feel uh, as it were in the 1970s for all sorts of reasons, but uh, it also took on a very artistic uh, feel uh, with with music um uh, largely through individuals like um, Bob Marley, who in many ways is is reggae's global ambassador um, uh, in death as, as in life, um, but also a lot of, of, of local muse- uh, musicians as well, uh, many of whom I uh, sort of got to know and um, attended their concerts and so on. And I just became very interested, you know, who is this guy called Haley Selassie? What, what, what does he stand for and, and why are there so many biblical references associated with him? So I just started asking questions, I guess, and and the curiosity was piqued, and um, and I took it from there. Um, And it's been an avocational interest of mine ever since. I I have to say that... uh, uh, and then I'll let you pose your next question. Um, I have to say that my very first publication was actually uh, on the Rastafari. I, I had a very kind mentor, Anthony Dyson, uh, at the University of Manchester, who lamented that there was no course uh, at the University of Manchester on the Rastafari, but he encouraged me to go to Jamaica, and I did so. I went uh, to Jamaica and, and uh, lived there for almost a year, moved around uh, various seminaries and various uh, homes, of Baptist pastors and preachers and and congregation members from back home and um, did it all on the cheap and managed to do some fairly basic, I guess what we would call ethnographic work now and that led to um, um, an essay that I I put together uh, in 1989 and here I am still writing about it.
0: Mm, That's great.
1: And uh, when you read the book
0: you can can definitely see your command over the scholarship. There's certainly uh, no reason to to lament over your not taking a class because you, you've certainly mastered uh, the scholarship for now. Um, one of the really interesting parts of the book that I, I think is unique and I want to just hear a little bit about why you chose to include this is you have interviews throughout the book. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think these interviews bring to the book that uh, isn't communicated in other ways and uh, how, how did this process – Go? Did you find it easy getting in touch with these people, uh, having conversations with them?
1: Um, it's a good question. I um, I set out to sort of try and give the book its own authenticity. I, I in sort of after I guess so many years worth of uh, on the ground experience with with Rastas, not only in my hometown of Nottingham, but also here in the United States and in Africa, and then even in Japan. Um, you know, I was confident that I, that I knew, uh, the material and, and I appreciate your comment about the scholarship. I've tried to, um, mine that as, as, as best as I, uh, am able. Um, but I, I really wanted to let the reader know upfront that I'm an outsider, obviously, to the movement. And anyone who does any study on the movement will quickly realize that insiders are often suspicious, rightly or wrongly, uh, of uh, outsiders because some of the early um, material on the rest, the scholarship material on the rest, was, was less than, uh, than flattering and, and really um, somewhat bogus as scholarship, if I'm honest with you. Um, I remember uh, being at the University of West Indies in 1987 and going through some uh, master's dissertations just to sort of get my bearings of what, you know, scholars and and students were saying about the Rastafari and was really quite surprised with – with some of the comments and that were attributed to them, some of their beliefs that were attributed to them, um, Rastas have suffered from a misperception uh, throughout their history, I think, and so I certainly didn't want to open myself up to that charge that I was not taking them seriously enough. Um, and so, what I what I thought would be helpful was to sort of balance my outsider scholarship with some insider voices. Um and so I was I, I reached out to folk that I know, some of some of them were unavailable or uh, unwilling, and you know I, I respect that. But many of them actually were quite happy. Um, some of them were established poets, like Benjamin Zephaniah, who just a few votes shy of um, being uh, Britain's poet laureate at one point in his career. Um, he's a good friend of mine and was quite happy to let me use some of his poetry, which can be extraordinarily expensive when you have to p- pay permission fees. Um, but he was. Also quite uh, quite happy to sort of chime in uh, with some timely and relevant comments on uh, his understanding of, of, of reggae music and its place within the Rasta faith and. Even his his approach to Snoop Dogg's conversion to Snoop Lion at the time, um, he's quite the cultural critic. But then I also was able to uh, check in with rising uh, reggae stars like Asante Amen, who's who's really um, quite an amazing um, vocalist um, from Jamaica and um has, uh, signed uh, an interesting sort of record deal and and is bringing out new music even as we speak uh, he gave me a very interesting um uh, review uh interview should i say and um what was really fascinating about Asante is he is a member of baptized member of one of the smaller uh, mansions or denominations within Rastafari um, and um, one of the more fascinating and least studied because it's one of the most recent and so it was kind of interesting to post some questions to him about that I've also managed to feature a fairly lengthy interview with Barbara McCady Blake-Hanna who uh, actually will be a visitor to um, TCU's campus next April she um, was um, what, basically the first insider uh, to write a scholarly account of the Rastafari, a novelist in her own right, the first journal, black uh, journalist on British Channel 4 television, the the only Rastafari independent opposition senator within the Jamaican Parliament, quite the uh, elder statesperson within the Rastafari faith, and, and she is just an extraordinarily patient and kind woman. So I think... Um, if you add all those voices up, I think, uh, as I as I mentioned a little earlier, they lend the book its own kind of authenticity, and and hopefully, uh, as I say early on in the book, readers will see that I've tried my best to balance um, outsider wisdom uh, with insider insight, as it were. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I think you achieve that. It's it's a it's a nice effect for the reader as well. So, thank you. So, just. Um, Since we're kind of getting in deep here, um, in the first chapter, you use Ninian Smart's dimensional theory of religion, which gives us various aspects or dimensions, uh, which he argues are uh, essential to a tradition. Um, And he uses this as a way to kind of explore some of the various teachings, perspectives, practices, uh, organizational structures of Rastafari. Now, Rastafari is very diverse, but could you (laughs) at least uh, perhaps start to give us an idea for listeners who may not know much about the tradition? uh, What is Rastafari all about?
1: Sure, um, I should sort of say, of course, that you know that right off the bat, Rastas um, uh, that you speak to, they're all they're all going to be very, very different, of course. And there are there are just as there are many Christianities, there's there are, there are many Rastafari, and not all Rastafari think and, and and act the same way. You can, as Benjamin Zephaniah points out in the book, he's often questioned about whether he's a true Rasta because he doesn't smoke marijuana, which which of course um, yeah. someone like Bob Marley did in in, in Co- opious amounts um but, uh, you know, the Rastafari is, is constantly changing. You don't have to be a Rastafari to wear dreadlocks, for example, or the, the, the matted hair, um, in, in plaits or in locks. Um, some Rastas maintain you must, but, so there's variety, um, within the, within the movement, um, which is not always picked up when Rast when, uh, when people speak of Rastafarianism, um, as with Hinduism. It's, it's a construct, it's a heuristic device that is both, Somewhat helpful, but somewhat misleading. Um, in terms of the Rastafari themselves, um, they'll, they'll often say that they are not a religion, they are a faith, or to use the language of the Rastafari, they are a liberty, um, a, a way of life, as it were, an experiential philosophy, uh, a way of looking at the world and being within it, uh, taking one's stance within it. Um, so I, I would want to say that I'm in some ways, this is the outsider speaking again. Um, um, I'm so, in some ways imposing a structure on the Rastafari to sort of um, help uh, certainly my students and then anyone who's reading the book to move beyond the idea that somehow be, Rasta is 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 not a religion and therefore ought, ought not to be taken seriously. Um uh, what I want to do is try to reclaim something of the religious dimensions of the movement and in that way then sort of get people to, to talk about the movement uh, more thoughtfully. Um, but back to you, Nanny and Smart, yeah. The, the, I use the dimensions there really to sort of show in just the same way that you can do it for Islam or for, for Judaism, uh, that Rastafari shares in, actually multiple times over, many of those dimensions. Um, Rastafari itself... The best way to start is to is to go to their central figure, and that is to go to the figure of Haile Selassie, the 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 last emperor of of Ethiopia, crowned in November uh, of 1930. um, Took many titles at his coronation, which was attended by a great many dignitaries from around the world. Uh, And one of those titles, um, actually one of the titles that that piqued my interest back in my teenage years uh, when I first grew up around in Nottingham. Um one of those titles actually is um uh, king of Kings Lord of Lords conquering lion of the tribe of Judah and uh, if you um, you know if you know your Bible um, uh, which I was was learning a great deal about in my state-sponsored uh, school class on religion um, I um, you know you would know that that is a um, a reference or an echo of Revelation chapter 5 verse 5 you go back in there and take a look at this rather mystical strange document you realize that, that most Christians uh, you You know, sort of refer or think that that verse refers to to Jesus of Nazareth, of course. The Rastafari interpret that text differently. So so here, almost immediately, we have uh, an example of the narrative dimension or the mythical dimension, because Rastafari will take that verse, Revelation 5, verse 5, they'll take the historical incident of the coronation of Emperor Haile Selassie. Uh, and they will connect it to some other verses scattered throughout uh, the um, the Hebrew Bible and the Christian scriptures. And we'll start to, before you know it, uh, connect the dots and speak of Haile Selassie as the one who's prophesied uh, about in the Hebrew scriptures. And um, they will see him as the prince who's going to come out of, of Ethiopia, who will um, lead... Um, Uh, his people uh, into freedom and into liberty. Um, They will see him uh, as the black returned messiah. Um, they'll they'll do a little bit of uh, interesting hermeneutics because in addition to the to the, um, the the Bible as a whole, they will also read Haile Selassie's coronation through another book. So this is another example of the narrative dimension, a book that's called the uh, the Kebra Nagast, which in Amharic means "glory of the kings." It's a it's a, a legend cycle really, of uh, several centuries old, which uh, gives an account of the Solomonic dynasty of the Ethiopia. Emperors going all the way back to King Solomon and Queen Sheba, and um, which is a, a tale that's told in the Bible. Um, um, and the story is, of course, that uh, to cut a long story short, um, that King Solomon and Queen Sheba have a child, a male child, Menelik the first. And if you if you come down two hundred and twenty five descendants from Menelik the first, you arrive at Haile Selassie so you can say that he's in the tribe of Judah. You can say, therefore, that he's in the Davidic line and/or the Solomonic line, and, and and therefore he is a revered, if not sacred, figure. So Rastas will will come forward with that and start to think of of Haile Selassie as as God, or to use the term that they use, Jah J A H Jah Rastafari, uh, the Living God, um, and uh, and then things start to sort of happen or get built around. Um, the centrality of that figure, you sort of move into um, rituals that are associated uh, with him. Um, for example um you know the the Heli uh, Selassie is is um, uh, related to Solomon as I just um, um, referenced um, the legend is that uh, ganja or marijuana the holy herb the, the the herb that is for the healing of the nations to quote from revelation again uh, that holy herb was found growing on the grave of King Solomon that's that's the way the, the tradition puts it uh, King Solomon one of the things that he's famous for is that he's a wise man Right, he's he's the original wise guy, Uh, and uh, traditionally the author of proverbs. Though biblical scholars, of course, will want to question all of that. Um, and so, why why smoke marijuana? Well, it's referred to as the weed of wisdom. Uh, it gives you the third eyesight. It heightens your consciousness. It it um, gives you a sense of connectedness to jar, um, Which, as many Rastas pointed out to me when I first made my trip to Jamaica in 1987, um, you know, you, you you connect to jar through smoking marijuana the way you would connect to God through Jesus Christ when you um, ingest. Uh, um, um, bread and wine at communion or mass—it's—it's—it's it's, it's sacramental. It's ritual in 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 that respect. So again, you have um, a ritual dimension to the movement. I, you know, you could go on here in terms of the ethics that are associated with Haile Selassie, the peace and love um, idea, and so on. Um, you know, just just a couple of the dimensions.
0: Yeah, I think that's helpful to get people uh, in into a little bit of the tradition your book is great because um, while there's been quite a bit of scholarship on Rastafari, um, very often it focuses on music. um, And while you look at music, you take a different angle, but you look at the arts more generally. And you begin with literature, which uh, certainly you explore uh, in your research more broadly, so it makes a lot of sense. Can you give us a little bit of sense of – the literary arts in relation to Rastafari. You look at, at several books uh, in detailed analysis. Um, what What's the range of work we find? Um, what does it tell us about Rastafari? Uh, what can we learn from this literature?
1: Sure, good question. Um, yeah, well, one of the things that I wanted to do was, of course, acknowledge um uh, how reggae has helped place uh, um Rastafari on the world's cultural map and I mentioned Bob Marley earlier there's there's a lot more to reggae than Bob Marley of course but he has to be given his due and I, I tried to do that in in various places. And I also try to introduce the uh, the reader to some some other um musicians, both dub poets like Benjamin Zeph and I whom I mentioned and then rising vocalists like Asante Amen um in Jamaica and then musicians from uh, further afield, uh, like um, um, Black Rasta, who's a radio uh, a DJ and, and um, a self-proclaimed Rasta Muslim in, uh, in Accra in Ghana, and his compatriot, Rocky Dawuni, who is kind of goes back and forth from uh, Ghana and uh, California, where he's based. Um, and then even some musicians in Japan as well. Reggae has to be acknowledged then, but you're quite right that there's, if you're going to speak of Rastafari in the arts, then, you know, uh, to try and render that as broadly as possible, that was my, that was part of my aim. And so I started really with literary art as well. And, including that uh, dub poetry of which there is a very very strong tradition um you know individuals like Mikey Smith he was one of the um foremost dub poets in the 1980s he was uh you know the kind of a would mix these militant poetic kind of molotov cocktails and then throw them out to the audience from time to time um you know, he got him into a lot of trouble with the political and social authorities of his day um, because he, he questioned, uh, you know, what I guess we would call structural racism today. I mean, he was one of the poets who, were, who was basically saying that uh, Jamaican black lives matter, I guess, um, back in the 1980s and really challenging the, the political structures uh, of which there are just two main parties really in Jamaica. Um, that got him into a lot of trouble with with ordinary folk as well, and he was um, sadly and rather tragically killed by by a, a rather indignant uh, mob, um, and who stoned him to death. And uh, other poets have picked up on that kind of mythical and 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 yet historical moment in in uh, and Dub. Uh, poetry history. Other poets uh, probably more famous because they've toured the United States, uh, folk like uh, Muta Baruka and Jean Binta Breeze. What you see in Muta Baruka is a really interesting uh, poet who's also a, a, um, a, an actor in Jamaica and, and to see him live is to see uh, a rather dramatic performance. He's certainly working with the, uh, with the stage rather than the page in mind, which is I think true of a great many Rastafari dub poets. Um, he kind of strides across the stage like some Old Testament prophet uh, sort of delivering his uh, righteous wail against uh, again some of the main some of the issues that Mikey Smith was interested in and um, and, and and sort of found troubling Gene Binter Breeze kind of adds a, a kind of a new dimension to it because anyone who studies Rastafari uh, at least from its, in, its earliest inception would recognize that he, here's a Rather strongly patriarchal religious movement, and for the first few decades, that's how it was. I mean, Rastas in the in the early days were very um, adamant about reading scriptures literally, um, rather than let's say allegorically. And when they got to various passages in in Numbers and Leviticus about a woman being let's say unclean during her menstrual cycle. Um, rastafari men were very uh, very clear about what that meant for them ethically and as a result women you know for, for all sorts of reasons beyond simply the menstrual cycle reason were um prohibited from full um involvement within the movement um but over time i think what's happened is uh, more and more rastafari women have found their voice there's kind of a um, if you can think of how womanism functions within African American religion, uh, in some ways there's a kind of raster womanism too. And Barbara McCady Blake Hannah whom I mentioned a little earlier, um, she's probably the, the the primary spokesperson for that, the first wave I guess, if you if you want to use some of that nomenclature. Um, who who pushed back against uh the treatment of women and Poets like Jean Bentebreeze, um, who was recently awarded the, um, uh, the MBE by Her Majesty the Queen, uh, for her contributions to poetry. So, so think just for a minute just how far the Rastafari have come if the Queen Elizabeth II is recognizing them. Jean, Jean breeze is, uh, is someone who's put gender, um, and Rasta on the world's cultural map through her poetry, uh, quite, quite acerbic uh, in her poetry, but a delightful woman in real life. Um, and uh, And so she 's part of that literary tradition if you If you sort of jump over to to novels, uh, those novels have been written mostly by uh, well a combination of outsiders and insiders. There are more insiders writing novels that feature Rastafari as characters these days than than outsiders but there are there 's a nice balance uh, hopefully in in my book. I kind of start with two outsiders roger may 's novel uh, brother man. Um, Um, Published in the early 50s and then Orlando Patterson's The Children of Sisyphus which was published in the early 60s both of them kind of landmark texts because they offer rather in in, in different ways they offer rather sensitive portrayals of the Rastafari at a time when in society the Rastafari were were being uh, met with all kinds of uh, critique from the social and political authorities of the day And, and both novels Predate um, the 1966 official state visit to Jamaica by His Imperial Majesty Haile Selassie, um, which was a you know a, a game changer for the Rastafari and the, and the social perception of the Rastafari among ordinary Jamaicans. So those two are really really important novels. If you come forward in time, and again to, to cut a long story short, you get um, novels by. Um, uh, storytellers like Barbara McCady Blakehannum, who wrote a kind of a um, uh, thinly disguised portrait of Bob Marley in her um, novel *Joseph*, which is subtitled a reggae, uh, a Rasta reggae fable, uh, I think is the is the title. And um, um, that's a really fascinating novel about a, a musician who um, learns to deal with with Babylon in the language of Rastafari, the kind of corrupt Western. Um, Social system uh, symbolised by the uh, recording industry in many ways, um, and then if you come forward in time, you also get uh, Canadian Rastafari women like Masani Montague, who write a novel really just solely and utterly about one woman's spiritual pilgrimage as a Rasta woman, um, which again tells us something about how women are finding their voice, uh, both in in uh, fiction as as well as in life. Um, one of my Good friend Jeffrey Philip, who's a creative writing instructor, one of Jamaica's finest novelists. Um, he's a creative writing instructor based in in Florida. Written a really interesting novel that kind of uses Dante's Inferno as his kind of template. Uh, sets a story, a modern story in Jamaica, and then has characters kind of a descend through their own hell, um, uh, and uh, with their own Virgil, uh, and the Virgil is here played by, the Virgil character is played here by a Rastafarian, so it's kind of an interesting um, uh, fictional transfiguration of, of Dante's story, only with with Rastafari uh, in in the hell that is... Uh, certain sections of modern jamaica so there are lots and lots of novels that feature Rastafari. i could only squeeze a few in there
0: yeah and i think uh what you do show us is that there is a greater um appreciation of this work and uh just this past year marlon james uh, wrote this very popular book a brief history of seven killings which uh, probably was too late of a publication to, to look at for this book. Um, have, you, have you looked at that at all yet? Yes,
1: yes, it's, it's a fine novel. It's, it's a very ambitious kind of sprawling epic of a novel. It would have probably taken up an entire chapter all by itself. But, yeah, I, I, I have a, an end note in here, in the book here and there, referencing that. But, I um, yes, you're right, it came in too late for me to really do it justice. But it's a, it's a fine novel.
0: Yeah, and this is uh, probably the most uh, widely acclaimed. So hopefully, uh, give you some more work to do down the road. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you 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 uh, talked a little bit about um, some of these dub poets, um, but I'm wondering perhaps if if people still might not even know what that is. Um, we, you know, we know what poetry is, but what exactly uh, are some of the d- dynamics happening with? Dub poets. What what makes them different than uh, the the tradition of poetry that people might be for more familiar with?
1: Okay. Well, one way to sort of um, pitch it is to sort of say, well, w- when we take our English literature classes, most of us sort of. Um, uh, learn to distinguish between uh, an epic poem and a sonnet, for example. We understand how the sound and sense and the structure of those poems are, you know, easy to distinguish or easy to identify over time, of course. Um, and we learn who the the great and the good are um, in terms of um, the the writers or the architects of those um, of those types of poems. Dumb poetry is. kind of an interesting phenomenon. It's not as though, um, it's, it's not that the dub poets do not have a structure to their poems, they do. It's just that early dub poetry of the sort that I became interested in, like Mikey Smith, like Muta Baruka, and to a certain extent, Benjamin Zephaniah and Jean Breeze all of all of them featured in my book um they sort of work again less with the with the page in mind so they're not sort of sitting down in in an ivory tower somewhere as a high-flying intellectual sort of uh, trying to compose um poems they work with the stage rather than the page in mind so that's one thing these are performance poets um dub actually takes its name really from, from a musical term. When, when reggae artists in the 60s and 70s would record a single. To save money on studio time expenses, what they would do is they would record a vocal version of of their song and then typically they would then, um, for the B-side of the 45, this is showing my age here, though vinyl is back in fashion, they tell me, um, for the B-side of a 45 single, they would take the same um vocal song but they would strip it of its vocals and then start adding distortions dropouts equalizations reverb you name it and they would co- where well, they would call that subsequent uh b-side the dub version so there'd be all kinds of uh um You know, sometimes extra vocals that would be added to it that would then be, um, that would have an echo or a reverb on it that would make it sound uh, sonically rather fascinating and some record producers just became you know quite famous for this um and lee scratch perry is one of them for example king tubby is another uh, the, the scientist is is another um they all made these dub versions and became quite famous for it well the dub poets kind of take their name from some of that because they would um in in later versions of those dub mixes, would often add their own poetry on top of the music um, and on top of the original song, and that 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 dub style became quite popular in the United States and in the United Kingdom much later in the eighties and sort of really um, um, was very influential with with early rap and early hip hop. Um, and uh, and so on. Uh, so the dub poets kind of take their cue from from the musical side of things. They work with the, with the, the stage and not just the page in mind. They also have a very strong social uh, dimensional component to their uh, music. I mean, to their poetry, excuse me. And I guess here what you you have to do is kind of put this in in uh, kind of a colonial context, um, Jamaica is a former Commonwealth country um, you know many uh, its educational system was, was based upon the educational system that I was uh, familiar with um, you know the, the the British educators that came over to Jamaica ran secondary modern high schools there the way they did in the United Kingdom. And uh, when I first learned poetry, of course, I learned nursery rhymes. And you know, the, a lot of those nursery rhymes would have been rather strange, I'm sure, to uh, to um, Jamaicans. And what you find with some of the early dub poetry is there are. Uh, twists on those colonial nursery rhymes, Um, you know, twists that draw attention to uh, disparities in race, class and gender and are, in in the way in which they draw attention to those disparities, they are pointed critiques of um, the British colonial system and of the social injustices that, uh, Ja- uh, Jamaican black uh, women men children have had to put up with for many many decades both uh, pre and post independence and, um, and so there's a, this this strong social dimension this kind of uh, an attempt to take um, as Rastas would call it Babylon uh, in the language of Rastafari to take Babylon and, and, and kind of grab it and put it in a poetic headlock that's what I think um poets like Muta Baruka and Benjamin Zephaniah and others are trying to do. So um, the social social dimension is almost a militant, uh, militantly social uh, come religious dimension because, again, um, to look at someone like um, Benjamin Zephaniah striding across the stage, flashing his dreadlocks, um, uh, is to see almost a kind of an Ezekiel figure uh, or a uh, or an Amos, um, you know, asking for uh, you know, justice to flow like an everlasting stream, but justice for all, uh, not just for those at the top.
0: You also look at film, and mm-hmm. you, you briefly discuss popular film, but then you focus on documentary film. Sorry. So could you uh, maybe just kind of set us up Briefly, with how Rastas are represented in Hollywood film, and then why you feel an examination of documentaries is is more fruitful for your work.
1: Thanks. Um, I. Um there, there is some scholarship out there, very, very fine scholarship actually, on the treatment of Rastafari in popular film, in in Hollywood movies. Everything from, of course, everybody would know this, uh, Cool Runnings, right through to um, you know Club Paradise and 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 other films, uh, um, New Jack City. Uh, there, there's some fine scholarship out there. I didn't want to simply rehearse that scholarship and um, make my own critique. So. The, the the bottom line really on the scholarship on those films is that the treatment of Rastafari is is really quite abysmal. I mean, stereotypical um, and uh, and really not not very informative or very insightful. So I I in my chapter on uh, what I call the real Rasta um is uh it begins with a kind of a, a very brief survey of some of that scholarship and a, and a nod and a wink to some of those films um you know even um there's the uh, the shark's tail actually has those two you know kind of jellyfish who are uh, have tentacles that look like dreadlocks and um and, and are wearing a tam and then are kind of Thugs, really. Yardies, I guess you'd call them, in Jamaican parlance for uh, for um, um, gangsters who are helping out uh, um, one of the characters in, in that in that children's animation. Um, the, the treatment is just not great. So I wanted to find something that hadn't been done, at least in a, in a comprehensive way, and that was to sort of look at some of the documentary films. There's a growing list of them out there, and I could only really... Do a kind of historical survey, start with some of the early ones, and then move forward to to one of the more recent ones, which of course was um, Kevin McDonald's uh, wonderful biopic on on Marley, which really does stress how he is a global ambassador for for the movement as well as for the genre of of reggae music. But I uh, really wanted to track historically the way in which those documentaries tell us something about the movement. And at the particular time in which they are being filmed or um, yeah, when they are released. And so I have um, uh, an early documentary that looks at the treatment of Rastafari women, uh, and that was uh, released in the, uh, the early 1990s. And then I come forward to include one that appeared in the mid-2000s, um, uh, which is um, uh, Monica Hyam's uh, fabulous documentary film called Awake Zion which uh, she is she's a practicing Jew and she was very interested of course in the connections between Judaism on the one hand and Rastafari on the other. She was living in Crown Heights uh, in Brooklyn and noticed that there were uh, of course in addition to uh, lots of, of uh, Orthodox Jews uh, in the neighborhood there were also quite a lot of Rastafari and so she started exploring some of the connections so she She's very good friends with Mattis Yahu, who, of course, is uh, an aesthetic uh, reggae singer, and very good friends with some other folk who appear in her documentary. And so she explored some of the links and went to Jamaica herself and then went to Israel to explore the reggae scene in uh, in Tel Aviv and elsewhere and um, came out with a fabulous documentary that really does... Pick up on something that I mentioned earlier when I was um, uh, describing or explaining Haley Selassie's significance to the Rastafari. If if you recall, I, I sort of went through the Solomonic dynasty and, and how he's at the tribe of Judah. Well, there's at least one of those connections with Judaism, and she explores many more besides, and she was very gracious in, in um um, and granting me an interview um, where we explored um, some of those connections and a, and a bit more massage. So um, that was very helpful.
0: Um, you also look at Rastafari in places where people might not expect it to be. Um, and you both kind of give us a, a glimpse at some of the scholarship that's been going on. Uh, okay. But you also give some insight from your own travels and ethnographic work um, can can you tell us about this globalization of Rastafari?
1: Sure. Um, so so the movement uh, is traceable to this this November 1930 coronation of of His Imperial Majesty Haile Selassie, and so if you come forward in time, that's just it's over 80 years or so, um, and the movement has uh, really. Uh, blossomed and mushroomed. It's almost like a forest fire in summertime, um, if you'll forgive the mixed metaphors here. But, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably easier to say where the Rastafari do not have a presence than rather to sort of catalog where the Rastafari are these days. Um my my research much of it ethnographic has taken me to you know not just the united kingdom but the united states and then to to west africa where i've done some work on rastafari in in ghana and also in senegal and uh, and then most recently in um, in japan where there are rastafari up in the hills outside of kyoto who have a rather interesting way of as they do wherever they find themselves of combining or blending or i guess um elements of local or host culture. Uh, in this case, it would be Zen Buddhism, with uh, with um, basic uh, or fairly rudimentary Rastafari beliefs. Um, you know, Rastafari are what Rastafari do, and they do lots of different things wherever you find them in the world. And, you know, so you can find, uh, and I didn't write too much about this in my book because like the Marlon James novel, it came a little bit too late in my research um, um, activities to sort of squeeze it into the book, but I really want to write about this. When I was in Senegal, you know, I met some Rastafari uh, Muslims, uh, followers of, of, uh, the Baifal who were really fascinating individuals to connect to because in their own lives they were trying to embody and balance this, this, um, um, desire or devotion to uh, kind of mystical Sufi form of Islam in Senegal, which is hugely popular with, uh, again, some fairly basic Rastafari beliefs with some fascinating results. But um, I'm still trying to process a lot of that um, in Japan, some of the Rastafari that I found there were similar to the Rastafari that uh, my good friend Marvin Sterling, who is a um, professor of anthropology up at Indiana um, he um, He wrote a book uh, that Duke published uh, a few years ago. Um, called Babylon East, which is really about reggae, dancehall, and the Rastafari in in Japan. It's, a, it's an extremely erudite and insightful book. And um, so I kind of built on some of my own work um, and surveyed some of Marvin's work and then had an interview with Marvin at the end of the book where he kind of fleshed out some of his answers to, to some of the questions I had about not only his work, but... Um, with the Rastafari in that far-flung part of the world. So, yeah, I I do think that anyone who studies Rastafari moving forward has to take seriously the kind of internationalization of the movement. Um, you know, uh, social media and uh, music and uh, just uh, migratory patterns have made all of that possible, the globalization of Rastafari. And uh, it's radically redrawing how we understand the African diaspora, because basically if Rastafari shows up in lots of different parts of the world, in former Soviet states, uh, right through to New Zealand and, and, and other parts, I mean Brazil, um, then, then, you know, the African diaspora is, is practically everywhere. We're having to rethink what that really truly means.
0: You finished the book thinking about the commodification of Rastafari, and and this is happening both um, from insiders and from outsiders. So can you help us understand this dichotomy between the anti-capitalist perspective that's very dominant in the Rastafari tradition um, and this contemporary consumer-driven manifestation of uh, its commodification?
1: Sure. Um, it's something that I wanted to to include in the book. Uh, you'll very quickly get to the edges of my thinking on this one, however, because it is just really an epilogue in the book it's kind of where i'd like to go next if i have the time um and where i think scholars um both insiders and outsiders should go next because the movement is changing so rapidly and uh, and again the social media and uh commercialization and the branding of the religion has to has a lot to do with that so uh I'm very interested in the way in which um, uh, a particular figure like Marley, Bob Marley, has been marketed, for example, um, in the year just before the, my book appeared. Um, you know, Marley's uh, estate teamed up with venture capitalists to uh, work on the legalization of marijuana. Which, you know, there are moves, uh, limited moves, have been made to to legalize marijuana in Jamaica, of course. And then, of course, there are many states in the in the in the United States that actually legalize it. And and I think that will, you know change and, 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 and move forward um, with subsequent years. It's interesting how the very individuals that Bob Marley would have bewailed uh, during his life uh, are now the very individuals that his family are getting terribly close to, um, the venture capitalists, because capitalism um, – if you go back through Bob Marley's um, discography, and there's a there's a fine book um, by um, Dean McNeil on the ba- the Bible and Bob Marley, which tracks all of this quite superbly. If you look at Bob Marley's discography, you find that he's, that he's there's an awful lot of anti-capitalist you know sort of um, social message in there, a lot of anti-capitalist invective, and uh, so yeah, I mean it's it's all there in in his critique of uh, of this this term Babylon. So it's interesting to me to see that with the spread, the global spread of the movement and the post-Mali possibilities for the movement involve the use of Mali in uh, the branding of the religion. Now, you know, I as an outsider can comment on that. I can, I can maybe – Um, championing it at at certain points. I can maybe lament it at certain points. I I can only go so far or I feel I can only go so far as an outsider. As I end that epilogue, I I, I sort of say it's it's really going to be up for um, insiders in the movement to sort of wonder out loud not only about the marketing of Bob Marley but also about the the co-option of Rastafari myths, symbols and rituals for usage in, in a whole host of things. And anyone who goes to my uh, personal website will see that I've mounted a whole series of images that will, will give you in all of the wonderful colors of red, gold, and green, the many, many examples, everything from shot glasses right through to lava lamps through to plush toys, you name it. There's something that has Rastafari, uh, symbolism attached to it. Now, is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? Um, I, as an outsider, sort of you know have my reservations in in other ways, I guess it actually puts it out there in the marketplace pun intended and um, gets people asking questions the way I asked questions when I was a uh, you know ten nine ten year old listening to reggae and hopefully those questions get answered by people who are informed um, but it's it, it is fascinating uh, how um, the religion has become branded and commodified in such a way that you can find even, um, and I encourage, I encourage your listeners to do this. You might sort of, um, there's an SNL, uh, short, um, that, uh, um, is is called uh, Raz Trent. It's all about a white guy, a trustafarian, I guess you'd want to call him, uh, who uh, goes to college and uh, and acquires uh, Rastafari as a, as a way of, of getting into um, uh, his um is kind of rebellion against his parents and um and it's and it's it's an example of how modern modern um, um you know sort of. Uh, affluent white uh, individuals are um, uh, taking to rasta
0: well darren we've taken a lot of your time and thanks for talking about this wonderful book Uh, before i let you go can you can you just give us an idea of what kind of things you're working on now we know you're you're very busy and publishing lots of things and various places so
1: Sure. Um, I'm actually, I, I try to do something, uh, different when I've, when I've finished a monograph like that. Um, and, and what I'm working on at the moment is a, um, uh, an edited volume with my wife, who's an American religious historian, uh, here at TCU. Um, I am, I'm trying to work on, uh, a volume of essays, art that'll really track the history of the evangelical novel. Uh, and, um, you know, look at some of the the novels that have really been quite powerful in shaping the conservative evangelical Christian imagination over the years. Of course, the the, the Left Behind series of novels becomes a really good example of that. I'm quite fascinated by the figure of Johnny Cash, who of course appeared with with um, with Billy Graham at many of his revivals, and you think of how Billy Graham harnessed popular culture uh, to brand a certain form of uh, of conservative to evangelicalism, um, that's that's quite powerful, quite interesting, and and one of the lesser known things uh, about Johnny Cash, one of the less one of the few things that actually is really known by a lot of people about Johnny Cash is that he actually wrote a novel about the Apostle Paul called The Man in White. Everybody knows, of course, that Johnny Cash was referred to as the Man in Black. Um, he wrote this novel about the Apostle Paul called The Man in White. He also actually had a film uh, called The Gospel Road, which was filmed. Uh, on location in Israel and uh, Johnny Cash is in it Uh, but it's this novel that's really interesting to me because if you track the parallels between the Apostle Paul such as we know him uh, as a figure in history and then Johnny Cash it is quite amazing what those parallels are. And um, so I'm hoping to write a book chapter on that that will situate itself in, in this uh, much larger collection of essays on um, that will put me in the company of, of some, some really heavy-hitting uh, American religious historians, um, uh, a volume that will look at the, the history of the evangelical novel.
0: Sounds great. Well, good luck, and uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again. Thank you. Appreciate it, Christian. That was my conversation with Darren Middleton about his great new book, Rastafari and the Arts, An Introduction, published with Rutledge in 2015. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion.